0: Ecclesiastes chapter seven, the preacher writes, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart Sorrow is better than laughter for by a sad countenance. The heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. In the last six chapters, we were introduced to the man Solomon, that's the preacher, the mission, the purpose, and to find out what is the meaning of life and then his preliminary findings. He's hard pressed to find meaning. To find purpose. There's no new thing. There's no lasting honor. And so Solomon's search is included trying to find meaning in things. Looking at life both from a human perspective and then from God's perspective. And Solomon has paid careful attention to human behavior and human life. And Solomon is considered the source of joy and and. That fortune brings an incomplete joy in chapter 6 verses 1 through 2. And family brings an incomplete joy in chapter 6 verses 3 and 5. And fullness of years brings an incomplete joy in verses 6 through 12. And Solomon isn't prepared to say what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life, and what is the best thing in life. So he begins by introducing us at least to the idea of something that is better and better becomes one of the key words in chapter 7 he's going to use the word quite a bit as we make our way through this particular portion of scripture as a matter of fact David Jeremiah gave a pop quiz to his congregation the quiz was short Five simple questions, true or false. And so in your mind, begin now. Question number one. I like laughter better than crying. Question number two. I like weddings better than funerals. Question number three. I like thinking about my birthday better than the day that I'm going to die. Question number four, I like compliments better than I like criticism. Question number five, I like shortcuts better than taking the long way around. Is that five? Oh, one more. I like the good old days better than the way things are now. David Jeremiah told the congregation that if you marked true to any of the questions, you flunked the quiz. If Solomon is grading the test, according to Solomon, all the questions should be marked false. But then we're hard pressed because in the real world, who likes crying better than laughing? Who likes funerals more than weddings? Who likes reflecting on death better than reflecting on life? Who likes criticism more than compliments? Who likes the hard way more than the easy way? Is Solomon some sort of Grinch? Is he some sort of glutton for punishment? He reminds us of the value of suffering that in good times, as well as what we might call bad times, we can find instruction. And so the chapter begins with the betters. In verses 1 through 12, and as we begin our study, you might do good to just make a note in your mind or under your Bible to underline the word better. In verses 1 through 12, the subject goes from better to bitter in verse 26, where he says, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her. So he goes from better to bitter. And the chapter ends with a kind of bottom line in verses 20 through 25 and verses 27 through 29 in the chapter. Meaninglessness, helplessness, uselessness and fruitlessness is going to be replaced by a discussion of wisdom As a matter of fact, wisdom is going to take center stage in Solomon's argument. And he's going to argue that wisdom is better than foolishness in verses 1 through 10. And that wisdom brings maturity and clarity of thought in verses 11 through 18. And finally, that wisdom provides a kind of fabric necessary in order to face life with courage and with fortitude. So in chapter 7, he's going to begin by contrasting joy and misery. Look what it says in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. So how are we to understand this? How do we think about what the preacher is saying? In the original language, in the Hebrew, there's a play on words. In Hebrew... The, the word for name is shem or sem, and precious ointment or oil is semen. One translator, Williams, writes, Better is name than nard. And another translator, Martin, takes note of the, the sort of play on words and he says, Fair fame. Is better than fine perfume in the Jewish culture a name was made way more than just something that identified a person a name was used in order to express the person's character or the person's attributes as a matter of fact when we think about the names of God there are lots of different names that the lord is given throughout the scripture he is called jehovah kadeshim um he's pronounced, he's he's called um the lord Jehovah Makedashim, the Lord who sanctifies Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals Jehovah Rochi, the Lord is my shepherd Jehovah Shaboat, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of our armies Jehovah Shalom Jehovah Shema Jehovah Sid canoe over and over again. The Bible uses different names to describe the Lord. And in the ancient times, a person would be given a name that they would hope a character would begin to emerge from that name. And so when it says that a good name, it's talking about a person's reputation. And I suspect that the precious ointment is the salve that's used to anoint the dead at burial. And so the Bible Speaks of God's names and His attributes, and the preacher's point is that when a person dies, his or her character and reputation linger. In other words, what people think about you remains after you die. And I think that part of his point is that long after the ointment's sweet perfume is lost on a decaying and corrupting corpse, the reputation remains. And so the day of death marks the end of a person's life. And it also means that when a person is dead, their reputation is no longer at at risk. It can no longer be degraded. It can no longer be eroded. As you can imagine, as you live and as you go through life and as you begin to acquire certain characteristics and certain reputation, once you die, the reputation is intact. When a person begins their life, do they have a character or do they have a reputation? No. Even though it's hard for us to believe, there was a time when little, tiny, young, young Adolf Hitler was just a tiny little baby. And if you met him, you would probably like him. He looks like any other baby. Genghis Khan would have looked like any baby that you might meet in any nursery. All babies seem to start off life with one advantage. They're lovable. What's not to love? The preacher's point is, which is easier? To look forward to a life that has not been lived or to look back on a life that's been well lived. That's part of the point that he's making. And so when he makes that point, that's Part of the challenge as he brings it to verse two, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. In what way is it better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting or the house of celebration? Now, let's talk about that word better just for a moment. The word is tobe. It's found six times in the paragraph. And the word is a comparative word. When we use the word better, we mean usually better in comparison to something else. When we study the Bible, we come in contact with The absolutes of God and the word of God. We live in a world of relativity. We live in a world of subjectivity. We want the fallen world to reflect back the black and the white absolutes of God. We need to see and to determine what's better And so when he says better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, I think that the right question to ask right from the start is what does that mean? In what way is it better? Could it be that the preacher is suggesting clearly that mourning is somehow a better instructor than laughing? I think that that's part of the point, because in the real world, who would rather go to a funeral than a feast? No one typically likes to place themselves in a position where they're sad or they're uncomfortable. So when he says better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, I'm going to suggest to you that what the preacher is saying is. If you live your life and you desire wisdom and you desire instruction, you're going to have two kinds of instructors. One is effective. The other is ineffective. So in what way do the living take dying to heart? Here's the point that I think he's making. That when we're forced to think about death, Death reminds us of life. When you're a pastor or if you're a preacher, you do a lot of funerals. You know, the Bible says it is appointed once for a man to die and then judgment. The Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible, if you carefully read the Bible, as you look at the genealogies that are listed in the book of Genesis, whether you're talking about. Adam, Or whether you're talking about Noah or whether you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whether you're talking about Judah, Joseph, whether you're talking about David and Solomon, when you read through the Bible, each and every character lives and then they die. And when you're a pastor, you bury the old and the young. You bury people who die expectedly and unexpectedly. But if you have ever gone to a funeral, almost invariably it's going to cause you to think about something. You might think about the person who's died, but you're also eventually going to come around to thinking about yourself. You're going to talk, think about your own life and your own mortality and your own existence and your own circumstances. And I think the reason why the preacher brings up this particular point is because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that death is something that you shouldn't avoid or not think about. That a careful consideration of death is going to bring the person to a right conclusion that, hey. Number one, what does the Bible have to say about death? Why do people live and why do they die? And is the Bible true when it says it's appointed once for a human being to die and then a judgment comes? Is the Bible true when it says that this life isn't everything? As a matter of fact, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12 was written by the preacher's father. David. I think Solomon read what his father wrote and he remembered what his father said. Better to go to the house of mourning. You have to understand something in the Jewish culture, mourning was serious business. If you've ever read the New Testament, you know, there're several different stories where Jesus comes upon a person who has just recently died and there are mourners who are listed in the in the New Testament and in the New Testament if you were a wealthy family or if you were a well-to-do family, you could actually hire professional mourners to come in and lament your loved one's death. Every funeral should cause us to think about our own mortality and our own passing. Well, does this mean that we spend all of our time thinking about death and dying? I don't think so. I don't think that that's the whole point that is being made in the passage, but I do think that we're to develop a healthy respect for and give due consideration to the subject. By the way, about one twelfth Of the New Testament is devoted to the birth of Jesus. 33% of the New Testament is devoted to his death. And his resurrection. So we could add to our list the pop quiz. What do you like better? Christmas. Or Easter. Wisdom is often found in the most unlikely of places. You see, as we face difficulty, as we confront adversity, as we make decisions on how to deal with hardship, guess what? Laughter. And joy can teach us something, but does hardship and adversity, does pain and suffering offer us anything that's worth learning? Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission, wrote, The great enemy is always ready with his oft-repeated suggestion, all things are against me. But oh, how false the word, the cold and even the hunger. The watchings and the sleeplessness, the nights of danger, the feelings at times of utter desolation and helplessness were well and wisely chosen and tenderly and lovingly meted out. What circumstances could have rendered the word of God sweeter, the presence of God so real and the help of God so precious? You never, ever understand very much about grace until you've experienced it for yourself. Forgiveness is never so wonderful than when you're forgiven. The hope of heaven is never so so generous than than when we live in that constant expectation. You know, the scripture seems to go exactly opposite to the way that the world thinks. When I was preparing this message, I defaulted back to. Murphy's Law some of you are familiar with Murphy's Law. If there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the one that goes wrong. There's a there's a list. If there's a worse time for something to go wrong, that's when it happens. If you perceive that there are four possible ways in which a procedure can go wrong and then you manage to circumvent those, then the fifth way, unprepared for, will promptly develop. If anything seems to be going well, that's because you've overlooked something. Nature always sides with some hidden flaw. Whenever you set out to do something, something else will be done first. Every solution breeds new problems. Enough research will tend to support your theory. (laughs) Smile, tomorrow will be worse. My favorite, logic is a systematic method of coming to the wrong conclusion with confidence. You know, I can see how people could adopt that view. In verse 3, look what it says. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Again, we ask the question, in what way is sorrow better than laughter? Look what the preacher says. For by a sad countenance. The heart may be made right or in the original language, it says may be made better. The old King James says made glad sorrow is better than laughter for by a sad countenance. The heart is made better. And remember what the Bible means when it says concerning the heart. Remember, the heart is the invisible you. The heart is what you think about. The heart is what you feel. The heart is what. You are on the inside. The idea is that we think and we act and we approach life from a more informed perspective when we recognize and consider certain things. Do you have the ability to forecast good or bad, right or wrong, tragedy or triumph? The answer is no, we don't have the ability. I think that, again, part of the point that the preacher is making is that a person who has a close encounter with death may have a different perspective on life. Have you ever sort of pushed the envelope? Have you ever had a close call? Have you ever been in a car where they just missed you? Barely. Or have you ever been in a car where they missed you pretty? They hit you dead on and you started rolling and under other circumstances, you might have died, but you didn't die. And did it change your perspective? Did it change your outlook? Did it change the way that you look at things? And in verse four, it says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And once again, the heart is the invisible you. It's the inner you. The heart is our mind and the thoughts and the emotions. And in the Bible, the heart is the core of our being. It's talked about in Exodus chapter seven, verse 23 and thought Deuteronomy 717. Remember when the The Bible says, worship the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. It's talking about all of you, the inner you. When we worship the Lord, we do it with our being, with our thought, with our understanding, but also with our memory. So the Bible says that the heart of the wise considers and reflects on grief and the subject of death. Why do you suppose that grief and death are important subjects for us? You know, there's a skull craze in our culture. I don't know if you've seen it, but with lots of babies being born, I'm seeing things that I never saw, like diaper bags with skulls on them. And I'm wondering... What is it about skulls? What is it about death? What is it about death that that is so culturally relevant? You know, in the Mexican culture, they have a, a day called a fecha, the dia, dia de los muertos. You know what that is? It's the day of the dead. Now, the day of the dead can do one of two things. You can obviously start to develop an appreciation, if you will, of your relatives and your family who have died. But I think that there is also a a sort of a toxic preoccupation with death. What is a healthy preoccupation with death? Remember what I said to you earlier? Does the Bible ignore the subject of death? Does it sugarcoat the subject of death? Does the Bible tell us that death comes as a result of sin? Does the Bible say that death is separation from God? The Bible says that death is separation from God, and so therefore the Bible devotes itself to a long list of subjects of how to be reconciled to to God. So how is it then that the fool is blind to such important spiritual issues? Look what it says. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In Proverbs chapter one, verse 22, in another place, Solomon writes, how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? I don't want to think about it. I just want things to be simple. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? I don't want it to be complicated. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning. I just don't want to know. And fools hate knowledge. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. And fools hate knowledge. But remember when the Bible talks about fools, is it talking about someone who's stupid? No. It's talking about someone who is morally detached. It's actually talking about someone who's devoid of understanding. And so in verse 5. Look what it says. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise for a, than for a man to hear the song of fools. So here's my question. What is the song of fools? Some Bible teachers suggest that it's a song of praise or it's a song of flattery. In other words, it's the song that fools sing in order to compliment a person who's hearing. By the way, the word song, there's another word play again. The word song is seer or sir. It's often used of literal songs in the Bible, almost always in the Old Testament when it's talking about the Proverbs or here the songs may mean songs of celebration or songs of jubilation or or songs that are sung during times of great festivity it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise the preacher says than for a man to hear the song of fools mark twain once said i could live for two months on one single compliment and i'll bet you he could because that's what the unbeliever does They're able to draw to themselves compliments rather than criticisms. And let's be honest, what would you rather hear? When I preach, I want to hear that the message was compelling, that it was illustrative, that my jokes are funny. David Jeremiah said, and i love the way he says this he says just once i'd like to preach such a good preach just such a good message that one of the deacons will carry me out of the sanctuary on their shoulders cheering that's every preacher's dream can you imagine preaching a message that is so inspiring so fulfilling that it's like winning the Super Bowl and somebody dunks holy water on top of you and just lifts you up on the soldier on their shoulders and carries you out. I like that. But here's the problem. I speak a lot. And because I speak a lot, I'm wrong a lot. The truth is that you can't go through life and have a whole lot to say without saying something stupid. I will misquote. I will misspeak. I will sometimes give wrong information. And rest assured, when I am teaching, a line doesn't form to shake my hand and tell me what a great job I did. It's usually to say, you know, you were wrong about this. Again, David Jeremiah says, I'm starting to realize that rebukes are really compliments turned inside out. Designed to mold and mature us in wonderful ways. But criticism doesn't feel that way, does it? Tell that to Charlie Brown. Do you remember Lucy? She's the one who gives psychiatric advice for a nickel. She always has advice for others. In one of, uh, one of Charles Schultz's episodes, he has Charlie Brown, one of my favorite episodes. I was a pitcher when I was in Little League. And if any of you have ever played baseball, the whole game is on the pitcher. And Lucy comes out of left field, and she basically rakes Charlie Brown over the coals. She says to Charlie Brown, your fastball is slow. Your curveball is straight. Your changeup is let down. And then she yells, why can't you win one, Charlie Brown? And then she goes back to left field and Charlie throws the pitch and sure enough, the batter hits it in the left field. And Lucy doesn't even attempt to catch the ball. And when Charlie Brown asks her why she didn't catch the ball, she says. I work strictly in an advisory capacity. That's the way it seems, doesn't it? Everyone's full of advice full of instructions, full of directions. Here's the problem. Can critics be cruel? Can they also be right? So how do we tell the cruel critic from the wise rebuke? How are you able to tell a little clues given to us in Psalm 141, verse five, where the psalmist says, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. The righteous rebuke. The wise person, the mother who instructs her child, the father who instructs his child, the person who points people in the right direction, the person who begs and pleads with you to honor God and to honor your vows and to walk in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God, the person who begs you to be honest instead of lying, the person who begs you to honor God instead of dishonoring God. And you know what? It is true. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. But it does absolutely no good unless we're willing to listen. When the wise person instructs us to act wisely, to honor the Lord, to believe the Lord, to submit to the Lord, that's the challenge. As a matter of fact, the contrast is made. A series of contrasts are made. In verse 6, it says, For like the crackling thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. And once again, there's a word play in the Hebrew. Thorns translates the word serim. Thorns under the ser, serim is the pot or the cauldron. Moffat translates this like nettles crackling under kettles. In the Near East, firewood was hard to come by. As a matter of fact, those of you who have the responsibility to cook for Christmas coming up. You usually have maybe one stove. Some of you have two stoves. Some of you even have three stoves. You can control the heat. You can put it all the way down to very, very low. And you can cook over a low temperature over a long period of time. And some of you can turn that baby full blast. In the Near East, you couldn't get firewood, but when you did, you wanted slow-burning fuel, and most people couldn't afford slow-burning fuel, so they used thorns, which were plentiful. But here's the problem. They burn quickly. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 58, 9, an illustration is given before your pots can feel the burning thorns. He shall take them away as with a whirlwind as in his living and burning wrath. Here's the idea. Thorns, when they're tossed into the fire, light up quickly. They heat up brightly and they make a lot of noise. And the fool's laughter is exactly that way. It's like a thorn. It goes up in flames. It burns quickly and brightly. It makes a lot of noise and then it's extinguished. So in the Bible... The fool is the person who's devoid of moral judgment. The fool is shallow and the fool is superficial. The shallow and the superficial person will say, do what you want. Go with who you want to go with. Don't worry. You deserve this. You owe it to yourself. The fool is shallow and superficial. The the fool will tell you what you want to hear, and it will sound great. If you want something to burn slowly, you have to have a source of heat that will burn for a very long time. And if you want something to burn quickly, you have to have something that will burn rather quickly. And Solomon points out that the praise of fools is quick and it's hot and it's showy and then it disappears. And that's the point. And so he lists a series of contrasts, the hard way and the easy way. Look what it says in verse seven. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. You've all heard. The expression that the squeaky wheel gets the yeah, gets the grease or the oil. And the person who gets the bribe will often take the bride because they start off an otherwise decent person and then they morph into a corrupt and an indecent person. Because here's the deal. Sometimes it's difficult to wait patiently for God's plan and God's purpose and God's agenda. Have you ever met a person who says, I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. I don't want to wait. And it's true. A lot of people don't want to wait. They want things to be easy and they don't want things to be Hard. My wife's been experiencing some trials trying to resolve her father's estate. And in Mexico, they don't have bribes, they have fees. Things fall into three categories regular, which takes six months, urgente, which means urgent. Takes two weeks and muy urgente, which means very urgent. There's one fee for the six month, there's another fee for the two week, and there's a third fee if you want it right now. But when does a fee become a bribe? If you want it done quickly, if you have to have it now. Do you remember when you were a kid growing up? You guys are way too young. What do you want when you've got to have something and it's got to be sweet and it's got to be a lot and you've got to have it now? What do you want? Yeah, it's Cracker Jack. See, who says advertising doesn't work? Almost invariably, it's difficult to wait for God's plan and to wait for God's purpose and to allow God to work out the matter. And so there's a series. He's he's contrasting certain temptations that are hard to reject because you want things done now. And in verse eight, it says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. We all suffer the, the temptation of impatience when in adversity we're. We are impatient for it to end. When there's a trial and a trouble, you just say, I just want this to be over. Rarely do we say, bring it on. I want more and more of a difficult thing. So many things in life begin with a bang and end with a whimper. And so when he says the end is better than the beginning, again, there's the word better. It's a contrast. In what way? In what way is the end better than the beginning? You know what the right answer is? When we live according to God's plan and when we live according to God's purpose, when we live in such a way that we invite the Lord to be the important part of our life. You see, if Jesus is the Lord in the beginning of your life and if Jesus is the Lord in the middle of your life and if Jesus is the end is the Lord in the end of your life, then clearly the end still remains better than the beginning. When is the beginning better than the end? According to the Bible, the beginning is always better if it begins with sin. By the way, does sin start off really nice and then end terribly? James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tested or tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself solicit or tempt anyone. But each one is tested or tempted when he or she is drawn away by his or her own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth. Sin starts off good enough. The buzz, the high. See, this is interesting to me. Satan begins with the best. And ends with the worst. But you know what? If your life is hidden, Christ. If you're honoring and serving and loving the Lord, the way You begin isn't always indicative of the way that you'll end. Joseph started life as a slave and he ended as a sovereign. Daniel started life as a slave and he ended being one of the chief rulers. How did your life begin? Maybe it began under very good circumstances. And some of you, it began under even more difficult circumstances. And the beginning of your life really isn't an indication of the middle of your life or the end of your life. So when is the end better than the beginning? It's when it ends with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's exactly what Paul writes. He says, "Hey, I'm torn between the two. What's is better to stay with you or to go and be with the Lord?" In verse nine, look what it says: "Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools." Another temptation is anger and bitterness and anger can result from adversity, but also in the midst of prosperity. In other words, people can get mad about a lot of different things. They can they can get mad when everything is going right. And they can get mad when everything is going wrong. Prosperous people get angry when they don't have what they perceive to be enough. But anger can sometimes settle into a lifestyle of bitterness. By the way, the word for anger that's translated anger can also be translated grief or frustration. And so in verse nine, where it says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of, of fools. The fool is the one Who has the anger on the inside? It's just there, just below the surface. It's the anger that's getting ready to erupt, to explode. And so the preacher says, Don't be eager in your heart to be angry because it's inside the bosom of the fool. And then in verse 10, look what it says. Do do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Sometimes life is hard. And so we do long for the good old days. Sometimes I'll just be sitting there going, I can remember when candy bars were a nickel. When a Coke was a dime. When gas was 39 cents a gallon. But remember, minimum wage was $1.65. We want things to change. But sometimes we don't want them to change. Sometimes we do want them to change, and sometimes they change way too dramatically for us. And when the foundation was laid for the second temple, the old men wept when they remembered the glory of the first temple, and the young men sang songs, and they began the work according to Ezra chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. Warren Wearsby's fond of saying that the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. And sometimes that's true. But What is the preacher saying? Do not say why were the former days better than these? You know why he's saying this? There's an old song that we grew up with. That was yesterday. Yesterday's. Yesterday's gone. You can't retrieve it. You can't bring it back. The past can't be changed. And because you can't change the past, you can't undo the past. What do you have left? Only the present, huh? By the way, we can't change the past, but can we change tomorrow? What do you suppose the answer to that is? In one way, the answer is yes, because what you decide today will have a profound impact on what you do tomorrow. There's an expression carpe diem, you know, the word it means seize the day. It was actually first written by the poet, the Roman poet Horace. We live today in God's will. We live today according to God's plan. If you live today according to God's will and according to God's plan, guess what? Everything's going to be fine. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. We can't live paralyzed by the past, but we also can't live hypnotized by the future. The Victorian writer, Hilary Bellock, wrote, quote, while you are dreaming of the future or while you are regretting the past, the present, which all you have slips away and is gone. This is why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. This is why the Bible makes it abundantly clear that if ever there was a time for you to walk in humility and decency and integrity, it's now. David Jeremiah relates an illustration from an old devotional magazine called Our Daily Bread. I liked it so much that I had to share it with you. During World War Two, there was a man in Sussex, England, who sent some money to the scripture gift mission, and he enclosed a letter saying that he longed to give more, but. The harvest on his farm had been very, very disappointing because of a lack of water. And he was also fearful because German bombs were being dropped in the area and his family and his farm were at risk. And so he sent the workers of Scripture gift mission a a letter. He says, please pray that no bombs will fall on the land. And Mr. Ashley Barker wrote back from the mission and said he didn't feel led to pray that exact prayer. He said he he would pray that God's will for their lives would prevail. And shortly after, a huge German missile crashed on the farm. Now, none of the man's family or livestock were harmed, but the bombshell penetrated the ground to such a depth that it liberated an underground stream. And the stream yielded enough water to irrigate the man's farm but also to irrigate every other farm that surrounded his farm. And the next year they had a bountiful harvest. And the man was able to give a generous offering. David Jeremiah writes, quote, Even bombs can be blessings if they fall from heaven. They make a lot of noise they liberate something wonderful inside of us streams of living water that draws us back to the lordship of Jesus Christ How often do people say to you please pray that this will happen please pray that that will happen please pray that this will happen or that will happen and trust me i have done it myself Sometimes it's difficult to pray. I want God's will for my life. You know, typically we don't look for bombs or burdens. We want the Christmas party, we want the joy, we want the celebration. We want the eggnog. We want the sugar, or at least our body wants the sugar. But guess what? It could very well be that God has a plan. And the only thing that we can accurately and consistently say that transcends time and space that where yesterday is exactly the same as today and today is exactly the same as tomorrow is in the person of Jesus Christ isn't it because he's the same yesterday today and forever you know there are people who live in the future they live for tomorrow but they abandon today remember Jesus when he taught us to pray he says when you pray pray this way pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread give us what we need right now Give us what we need to love you now. Give us what we need to live for you now. Solomon adds, it's not wisdom from above that causes us to want something that God never intended. We're warned in the midst of prosperity, in the midst of Adversity, we will sometimes be tempted to abandon wisdom and live like a fool. But that's not the reason why Jesus saved you. Jesus saved you so that you could live for Him, so that you could live wisely. And so that you could live in such a way that you could be an effective man or, a, or an effective woman for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this Christmas, maybe it's a good idea to pray. Heavenly Father, I want your will for my life. I want you to give me exactly what it is that you want me to have. And I want you to withhold from me exactly what you don't want me to have. Lord, I want you to give me exactly what I need to honor you and to love you. And Lord, I need to abandon anything that is going to keep me from dishonoring you or living a life estranged from you. And so, Lord. Help me to be wise. Help me to be confident that, Lord, you are in control. And again, Father, we pray as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that in the back of our mind, we would cast a look forward and we would look into the future, a death and a resurrection. And that we're reminded, Lord, that in Jesus we live. And in Jesus we die. And in Jesus we will come back to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.